Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. I am not here on my own authority, 
but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but you know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach to the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants? and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. And you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Ian. I'm one of the staff at St. Matt's, and it's my privilege to share uh, God's Word with you this evening. And uh, I want to start by taking us back to the beginning of this year. Emily's uh, already helpfully done that to the vision that we launched for our church, the new vision at the beginning of the year. And it's on the slide that's about to come onto the screen that you can see there. And just in case you need a refresher there, there are three parts to it. To be a community of lifelong disciples of Jesus, engaging our world with grace and truth. And the three parts are indicated there by the three icons and the three key words that uh, Emily pointed out there. And so there's uh, community, which is about place. Uh, community is, is somewhere where there's a place for everybody. And the icon there has uh, got the people with their arms linked together. And the idea of being lifelong disciples of Jesus can be summed up in terms of potential. 
in the sense of um, living out all the gifts that God has given us in the community that, in which he's placed us and hanging in there with Jesus and serving him all our lives. And you can interpret the crowns in different ways, I think. Uh, one way of doing it is to say uh, moving from little crown to big crown, we're growing in our understanding of Jesus' lordship over our life. Or another way of looking at it might be uh, Jesus is the big crown and, uh, and we take that crown and put it on our little heads indicating that we live under the lordship of Jesus. Maybe that's what it means. Uh, you can uh, interpret it how you like. And then the last one is purpose. Uh, and like Emily reminded us, uh, the purpose of the church is to um, share the gospel so that there might be worship. And uh, mission exists because worship doesn't. And so our, our aim is to, our purpose is to share the message of Jesus with those in our neighbourhood and our, our um, networks of friends and in all nations. And so there's our, our purpose. And so what we did at the beginning of the year, as well as launching that new vision, we took the last part, engaging our world with grace and truth, and made that our focus for this year, engaging our world with grace and truth. Now the phrase grace and truth of course comes from the beginning of John's Gospel and the first, uh, the first verses which are like his backstory, which tell us where he came from. And it says that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And John says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And since that's how Jesus came into our world, what we want to do is go out into our neighbourhood and networks and the nations with that same grace and truth that we've found in Jesus and share his grace and truth engagingly with those around us. And so that's where we started the year with our vision and our focus and so what we did, of course, we started with John's Gospel, since that's where our focus has come from. And uh, at the beginning of the year, we started with, uh, with John's Gospel. And in John's Gospel, we also see God's motivation in sending Jesus out into the world in grace and truth. We see the heart of God for sending Jesus. And the backstory there is that God loves our world. And our uh, series title is Life for the World because that's what God wants. And the idea is that God loves our world, it belongs to him. He made it and it's his and he loves it. But it's a world that by and large has never recognised him as its creator. It's a world in which all people are stuck in a cycle of sin, which leads to death. And it's a world that is really worthy of condemnation and destruction for our rejection of our Creator. But yet God remains for our world. Because of his great love, he sends Jesus into the world full of grace and truth. And he sends Jesus into our world to show us God. To say, here is your God, your Creator. And he sends Jesus into the world to bring light into our darkness. And he sends Jesus into the world to bring life into death. And then the purpose of John's Gospel, if that's the backstory, the purpose, the aim, the, the hoped for result is that near the end of the book in chapter 21 where he states clearly that these signs, right, these miracles, 
that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples are written down that we as readers might believe that Jesus has come from God, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, we personally might have the life that Jesus came to bring. And so that's the aim of the book, the backstory and the aim. And so the book tells us about people that Jesus met, people into whose lives Jesus brought grace and truth. It talks about the many miraculous signs that he did, his amazing teaching, his death, his resurrection. And, uh, and we see what difference it made to those people's lives and how they received him. And so that's the invitation and the challenge of the book today that we might believe and keep believing in who Jesus is and really understand who he is. And that's the challenge at, that lies at the heart of our reading today in chapter 7. It's, uh, it's worth thinking about where this chapter comes in the book because at the end of chapter 6, if you look back there, we have this wonderful statement from Simon Peter who, when others are leaving Jesus, uh, Jesus says to them, do you want to leave me too? And Simon Peter says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know, as we've been travelling around with you and watching you and sitting with you and learning from you, we've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And then in this chapter, the events of chapter 7, Jesus is back out there in the public spotlight. He's amongst the people and we come into this chapter wondering, will uh, people draw the same conclusions about Jesus as Peter and the Twelve have done? Have they been able to recognise who he is? And what I think this chapter is all about is this. To really understand Jesus, you have to look below the surface. To really understand Jesus, you've got to look below the surface. Now, uh, this week I was reminded of uh, a dear friend of mine, a, a beloved wise, uh, mischievous, faithful, courageous friend. Uh, you can see him on the screen there. He goes by the name of R2-D2. And I'm so sure you know about him, even if you haven't watched the Star Wars movies. R2-D2, what a, what, a, what a guy, right? There he is with his anxious friend, C-3PO. But uh, I just think R2-D2 is really the standout uh, the standout droid, the standout companion. And a cartoonist I saw during the week was prompted to consider, you know, what lies beneath the surface of R2-D2? What would happen if R2-D2 logged into Ancestry.com, for example, to find out what, uh, what has gone in to make up uh, R2-D2? So here's what the cartoonist came up with on the screen. There we go. We've got 23% C++. Can't quite read that. 18% Linux. And then I was a 26% trash can, 4% hubcap. Come on, that's uh, that's no good. I, I really think that uh, just because he looks like a trash can, just because he looks like a hubcap, doesn't mean that that's uh, that's all he is. This is R two D two we're talking about, right? There's much more depth to him, and I really think that cartoonist has uh, has done nothing more than just look at the surface. He hasn't really gone into the depths and looked at R2-D2 below the surface. What a guy is R2-D2. Now, 
My, the message I think of this chapter is, my understanding of it is to really understand Jesus, you've really got to look below the surface. Many people today dismiss the Christian faith, dismiss miss Jesus, just based on a superficial, superficial familiarity with him and dismiss Jesus without really understanding him properly. And perhaps even as Christians, we ourselves can lose touch with what we've come to know about Jesus what we've come to learn and to grasp about who he really is and be led astray because he doesn't meet some of our superficial expectations of him. And so it's really helpful to us to look at this and to see, yeah, we really need to understand Jesus and to, to understand him and to really stick with him. We've got to keep remembering who he is, who he really is and to look again below the surface. Now, where do I get this point, uh, this point from? It would be great uh, to have your passage open, your, your um, chapter 7 open, and to look at uh, chapter 7, verse 24. And this is right in the middle uh, of our reading, and it says in chapter 4, verse 24, Stop judging by mere appearances, says Jesus, but instead judge correctly. Stop judging by mere appearances. Look below the surface. And judge correctly, Jesus says, as they look upon him. Now, where, where does this, uh, this statement happen? If we step back, the setting for this is in the middle, uh, right smack bang in the middle actually, of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a really popular uh, Jewish festival time. And really, it's like a camping festival. So people would come from all over the land to Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas and they would camp in temporary dwellings, tents made of uh, um, leafy branches and, and things like that. And they would camp on, uh, on the flat rooftops, they'd camp out in the fields, and they would live in tents for seven days, the seven days of the festival. And uh, on, uh, the biggest part of it was that's a harvest festival. People would come together and they would thank God for the provision of, uh, of all that had been harvested in that harvest season. But the deeper reality of that festival is that it was also a time of remembrance and thanksgiving for when the Lord had rescued his people out of Egypt and called them out to be his own people and they had lived uh, in tents in their time wandering in the wilderness and in the desert. And they had lived in tents and, and temporary dwellings. And to remember that time by living in, again in, in, in tents and in temporary dwellings was just a reminder of who they were as God's people and that God was their provider, that he would, uh, he would shelter them and look after them. And, uh, and, and each morning of the festival there would be a special water ceremony um, and it would be a reminder of the time that Moses brought water out of the rock I say so people could drink. And it included a prayer for the ongoing provision of water to the people in, in Jesus' day. In the morning there was that, that water ceremony. Each night in the evening there would be this uh, huge uh, celebration in the court of the women, which is the outer part of the temple, which is accessible and you could, you could see it. And there would be huge candelabras with heaps of light shedding light on the, the whole area and they'd be singing and dancing and a big celebration and it would be a reminder of God guiding his people when he called them out of um, Egypt by the pillar of fire at night. 
He was the light of God's guidance. It's also symbolic of the word of God going out from the temple, shining out from the temple, the light of his word. And it was also about looking forward to the time that when the Messiah would come. Think of Isaiah's promise, you know, that the people are walking in darkness have seen a great light. Oh yeah, we're waiting for that light to come from God. And so light and water was really a special part of the time living together under tents. And now what Jesus had done in coming to this festival, he had come to say, I have fulfilled all of this festival, all of this celebration, all of this national remembrance and thanksgiving and anticipation, I have come as the fulfilment of this. Okay, in Jesus, God has come to dwell with his people. Uh, Jesus announces that he is uh, like the water in the morning. He is living water. And in chapter 8, he's still at the festival there and he, 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 surrounded by you know, where the lamps are and he announces, I'm the light. I'm the light of the world. He has fulfilled this whole festival. Now, in order to um, hear Jesus and to believe what he was saying and to receive him, the people really had to understand who this guy is? Who is this standing up at our national festival saying that everything that all this is about is fulfilled in him? Who has the right to say, to say that? And so Jesus allows himself to be put under the spotlight uh, for the people to examine him. And it actually plays out a little bit like a court scene in a way. God is in the dock for people to judge. And, uh, and, and uh, there's a court scene uh, there's a bit of rumbling in the, in the first paragraph there as people whisper. You know, the, the, the Jewish leaders are looking out for him, waiting. The people are whispering, oh, I think he's good. Oh, no, I think he deceives the people. Oh, look, and then here he is in verse 14 and he speaks. And he speaks and the people question him and he responds and he actually turns the tables on them and brings counter charges against them as they, as they interact. And they make their judgment upon him but he judges them and says, your message, your, your understanding, your judgment of me is superficial. Stop judging by mere appearance and judge correctly. If you're going to understand who I am, what I'm saying, you've got to judge not by appearance, but you've got to understand, uh, judge correctly. Look underneath the surface. And so this, this whole scene that plays out that we, we, uh, we read, thanks Heather for reading such a long reading so clearly, thank you for that. This whole account, there's this, it's, it's, it's fantastic, it's a fantastic story. There's great tension, there's drama, there's these choice interactions, there's this great trading of insults from, uh, you know, from the, uh, the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees insulting Nicodemus and insulting the, you know, the guards. It's a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, scene. But what I'd like to do is to focus in on three particular aspects uh, with regard to how people judge Jesus by mere appearances and not correctly and to see what encouragement they bring to us as we uh, read what is happening here and as we think about Jesus. And there's three things that they, they kind of judge superficially. First of all, the idea of his appeal, his, uh, pop, his popularity, his public appeal. They, uh, they judge that in a superficial way. They think about his authority to speak 
to the people like he does in the festival and they judge uh, his authority in a superficial way and also his authenticity and they judge his genuineness as the one who's really come from God. They judge his authenticity in a superficial way, his appeal, his authority and his authenticity. So let's start with, uh, with his appeal, his popularity and of course this actually happens um, in the precursor to the festival and verses 1 to 10. So it would be great to have verses 1 to 10 open in front of you there. Now you can imagine Jesus' family, they're going down to Jerusalem and the area of Judea for the big week-long camping festival. Now I don't know if you've uh, prepared for a big camping holiday with your whole family but you're going to the garage or whatever and you pull out all your stuff uh, you pull out your, your camping gear and your stove and your, your bedding and your tent and whatever else and you make sure it's all in working order. It's a big job and you check it all out, perhaps, uh, perhaps a week or more, a month in advance to see if you've got time to, to fix anything or whatever. So it's a big thing to take the whole family so far, you know, for this, this uh, seven, seven nights uh, in, a, in a tent camping trip. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, sometimes there's someone in the family who's not doing anything while you're packing. Is there someone in your family like that? You're all packing for holidays. You know, where's such and such? Oh, he's in his room on a screen or, you know, or he's gone for a drive around the block or something like that. Gone. Not to be, uh, not to be found. And so Jesus, perhaps is a bit like that. He's not coming. The family's getting ready to go and Jesus has decided he's not going. And so this provokes the brothers to kind of mock him. Yeah, you've got to come to Jerusalem. You've got to get down there and do all this fancy stuff you've been doing, all these great signs and, and that sort of thing. Go and do it down there where everybody can see. Come down to Jerusalem, down to Judea and make a name for yourself. Show yourself to the world if you are who you say you are, which they don't believe. And their assessment of him, of course, is only superficial. They don't understand the kind of mission that he's on. They don't understand who he is. They don't understand uh, the, the message that he's brought, he's bringing to the world. What would they find if they looked beyond mere appearances to understand who their brother really is? I got to wondering, what would it be like if uh, Mary and Joseph got the family together and decided that they were going to log into Ancestry.com and, uh, and see where everybody in the family uh, came from? And so the brothers might sit down and they might get their results and they look there and they say, oh, look, oh, you know, there's Mary and her family. Yeah, we can see who's in the family line there. Look, there's Joseph and his family. We can see who's in the family line there. That's where these guys come from. That's where they're from, right? We look below the surface, Ancestry.com, and it tells us this is where the brothers are from. And imagine Jesus sits down to get his results. There's Mary, her family line. And then what's on the other side? The whole thing would blow up. Who's on the other side? It's not Joseph. Who is it? We don't recognise this. Error. You know, error 404. What is it? Page not found. We don't know who this is. And that's because uh, on the other side of Jesus' family tree is God. Right? He's the creator. This is trying to work out who is this? Who, who, who is this? We look behind the surface and we see that this actually is not even somebody from this world. This is the creator who has come from God into the world with a judgment to bring that the works of this world, this earth, are evil. 
And that's why Jesus says the world doesn't hate you to his brothers. It can't hate you. You're of the world. But it hates me because I have come into the world with a judgement. And so Jesus is never going to be popular in the way that they're imagining it and the way that they're saying he should be. Jesus will for sure be lifted up but not in accolades but rather on the cross. But as he says, that time has not yet come. And he's also not at liberty to, doing, to, to, to do things in the most appealing way. Sure, for the brothers, any time will do. But not for Jesus, he's working to his father's timetable. And he hasn't had that word yet, that it's time to, uh, to go to Jerusalem for the last time. Now, today, we might find ourselves also lamenting Jesus' lack of a certain popular appeal. And we might wish that he would make himself clearer. Jesus, it would be so much easier to follow you and to announce you if you would just show yourself to the world, if you would win people over, if you would make a name for yourself, if you would be popular. Wouldn't it be so much easier to follow Jesus if he would do that? But these are expectations that are just based on a superficial understanding of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. Because the deeper reality is we've seen that he has come to bring a message to our world that is challenging and that is not popular, that is difficult and provocative, but necessary to accept and believe in order to receive the grace of God and the light and the life that Jesus has come to bring. And so we would resist the temptation for, to want Jesus to be popular in the eyes of the world and to make himself known. You know, his time will come when, it, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But that, that's a time to come. You know, that's, that's the Father's timing. And so we resist the temptation to wish he was different. And as we follow him, uh, we don't want to sort of lament, lament a certain lack of popularity um, uh, we, we, for us uh, ourselves as we uh, follow him. We mustn't lament that, uh, that, that, that the world sees us the way it sees him, which is what Jesus warned us that it would do. He said, the world hates me, it's going to hate you too if you follow me faithfully. And so, um, so let's not uh, lament that being Christian doesn't make us popular. It was never, it was never meant to do that. And so we, we uh, resist um, wanting superficial things of Jesus in terms of appeal and popularity. Now the second thing is authority. And the leaders judge Jesus' authority, whether or not he has the right to speak, superficially. Now in verse 14, this is where this comes out. If you have a look at verse 14, uh, Jesus there halfway through the festival. Jesus got to the temple courts and begins to teach. And it says, the Jews were amazed. They say, how did this man get such teaching without having been taught? Jesus hasn't been to one of our rabbinical schools and he hasn't had an apprenticeship, you know, teaching the people or anything like that. How does he get teaching like this without having been taught? And verse 15 where it says the Jews were amazed, 
The word there actually has a, a connotation of anger. They weren't like, oh wow, that's impressive. They were like astonished. I'm astonished that without teaching, you would get up in front of the whole nation and say you are the fulfilment of our hopes and remembrances. They, they are angry, amazed that Jesus would do this. And the implication is that he's made it up. He's come up with it himself because Jesus responds and he says, my teaching is not my own. This didn't come from me. I don't simply bring this to you. My teaching comes from God. You look below the surface and you'll find my teaching comes from God. And I'm here just to bring his teaching and to seek his glory. I'm not seeking my own glory. Right? I'm seeking God's glory, which means my motives are pure. I can be trusted, he says to them. This is God's teaching. And then he goes on with a real challenge in verse 17. And the real challenge, he says, is the only way you're going to work out and evaluate if this teaching has actually come from God is by putting it into practice. How much they would have to humble themselves before this one they're astonished at to truly be able to look below the surface and evaluate his teaching. They're actually going to have to put it into practice to be able to evaluate it. If we look back at uh, chapter 6 and see what um, Peter said again on behalf of the disciples, in, um, uh, I've gone too far back, back, chapter 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answered the Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, we have, we have come to believe and to know, right? not just we've suddenly realised, but we've come to believe in the time we've been with you, listening to you, watching you, doing what you ask us to do, we've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. They've put it into practice and found it to be true. And if you skip forward after our chapter to chapter 8, have a look at verse 31. Now this is still at the festival, but it's towards the end of the festival and Jesus is speaking to the Jews who had believed in him through the course of the, the festival. And Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So he's saying, if you hold to my teaching, then you'll come to see that it's true. You'll know the truth. The only way you can evaluate this is to put it into practice. That's what they need to do really to look below the surface of what Jesus is saying. Now, um, in our family we have uh, three teenagers, two of them on, on their L's. Uh, we have one who's only a year away from his L's. He turned 15 just this week. Uh, we have two adults. Uh, I'm one of them, just in case you were worried about that. And we have one car. And uh, it's just not enough. And so we're thinking we need to get rid of our one big car and get two smaller cars. So that's our plan. So a few uh, months ago or so we decided this and of course what do I do? I jump online 
And I start looking at all these cars and I go, oh, I reckon, you know, we could get that one or that one or this one and narrow it down to a few different models and a few different sizes. You know, we don't want to go too small, but we've got to, we've got to keep it small because then we've got to go and get another little second-hand car that we can use for uh, driving lessons and, and things like that. And I go, okay, I reckon we narrow it down to this one, right, this little one, higher spec, this slightly bigger one, lower spec and this is the second hand model car we want because this is the one everyone says is reliable and you know this is the year range we're looking for. Great, problem solved, let's get on with it. Uh, at the end of that process I announced that to my wife and she says, oh, will you just slow down? And she wisely says, we've not sat in any of these cars. We haven't driven them. We don't, we don't even know if our kids fit across the back row of the, 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 the larger of the smaller ones. We don't know how they drive. We don't even know if your knees are going to fit under the steering wheel. We have to go and sit in these cars and try them out to know. You're just going to have to be patient. We're going to have to wait till after lockdown to go and do this. You've got to sit in it if you want to know if it's really going to work for you. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you want to evaluate my teaching and find out whether it's from God, you only do that by pursuing the will of God, by actively doing uh, what God has said uh, in Jesus' teaching. And then you'll be able to evaluate that, yes, it has indeed come from God. Now, today, you know, there are many people who, uh, who take a superficial understanding with regard to the authority of Jesus to speak to us today. Right? On their superficial reading of Jesus, well, he's good, he's a good man, but he's not qualified to speak with any authority into our lives today. He's good. But he's not sophisticated like we are today. He's good, but he's not scientific enough like we are today. He's good, but he's not contemporary enough. He's too bound to his own culture and times to speak with any authority to us today. And so they dismiss his authority to speak. His word can't be held to be authoritative to us today. That's their superficial reading. But when we look below the surface, we find that Jesus was not speaking out of his culture, not simply out of his culture, not simply to his day, but he was bringing a word from the creator of all humanity for whom time, culture makes no difference. He speaks equally to each one of us and he shows us who he is and he gives us uh, his word and his light and his life. And... It doesn't matter whether it's back then or now. His authority is the same because he made us and because he loves us. That is whose teaching Jesus is bringing. And to evaluate it, it actually has to be put into practice and tested out to know that it's come from God. It can't be judged superficially as so many might be want to do. And so as we follow him, it's really important that we don't lose our confidence in his word, in Jesus' word, as the word of our creator to us today. That it's a timeless word, a word from the God who made us and who loves us and is as applicable today as it was back then. And so not only must we not lose our confidence in it when perhaps those around us <coughs> might, might doubt it, but we must model it and show people how it works. And we've also got to recognise too that others have judged him on mere appearances and so invite them not to do that. 
But to ask them, you know, Jesus said about his teaching, you can only really understand it if you put it into practice and see where it leads. And so I invite people to say, would you like to read it with me? And we'll spend a little bit of time having a look at it and putting it into practice and then see what you think. Because that's what Jesus asked us to do in evaluating his teaching. And so that's uh, Jesus' authority, looking below the surface to see his authority. And then finally, his authenticity. The authenticity of Jesus as genuinely being the one who's come from God. Now, I love this, uh, this particular scene. There's a lot of time spent in this, uh, this section wondering where Jesus has come from. I think it's almost uh, funny the way people are, are, are talking and, uh, and swapping ideas about where he's from, where he's not from. And they, don't really, they can't really work it out. And there's also a big long section given over to where he's going. And uh, it just seems um, out of place to spend so much time from verse 32 onwards talking about where Jesus is going and not really understanding where he's going. So about where he's come from, Jesus talks about you know, the one who sent me. Uh, he talks about people knowing where he's from. Uh, they bicker about whether or not he's the Messiah based on where he's from. Okay, he seems to be the Messiah because the, 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 the authorities aren't putting a stop to his teaching but he, he can't be the Messiah because won't we not know where the Messiah is from? We know where Jesus is from so he can't be. Another thing is, you know, he's from the Messiah or, or, or good things don't come out of Galilee. Nothing comes out of Galilee. Uh, the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem but Jesus came from Galilee. It can't be him. There's all this talk about where he's come from. And it's interesting if they look below the surface just a little, they find that he actually did come from Galilee, uh, from Bethlehem. I beg your pardon. He uh, he's born in Bethlehem, as you know. He, he was he went and escaped from Herod in Egypt, and then he went to live in Galilee. He was born from Bethlehem. He does actually fulfil their expectations of the Messiah they've been waiting for. But even that's not really the point. If they're willing to look even further below the surface, they would find that where he's really from is heaven. That's where he's really come from. He is from God himself. And where is he going? There's this long section in verse 33. The Pharisees send the temple guards, go and arrest Jesus. And then we assume they go looking for him and that kind of theme of looking for him is a springboard then for Jesus to talk about the fact that um, he's going to go somewhere where they'll never find him, where where, uh, where, where they can't go. It's back to the Father. And of course, they, in their superficial reading, don't grasp that. They think, well, where's he going? We won't be able to find him. Is he going to preach to the Jews in the diaspora, you know, spread around the world? Is he going to preach to the Gentiles? Where's he going to go that we're not going to be able to find him? And it goes on like this. It's almost uh, comical. But what he's said is that I'm going back to the Father. Now, another thing I love about this is the way Nicodemus pops up in chapter 50. I mean, isn't that out of the blue? We have this beautiful story of, in chapter 3 of Jesus and Nicodemus talking together and all of a sudden you're like, oh, Nicodemus, he's popped up again. And he says, you know, Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier in verse 50 and who was one of their own number said, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And of course he cops an insult too. Are you from Galilee too? You know, look into it and you'll find that a prophet doesn't come out of Galilee. So he pops a bit of a serve there. But I think this reference to Nicodemus 
reminds us of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And if you think back to that conversation, Nicodemus was having trouble following Jesus and understanding him. And one of the things that Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is that those who are born of the Spirit of God, because Nicodemus was like, what do you mean born again? You can't go into your mother's womb to be born again. And Jesus is saying, no, you're born of the Spirit. And those who are born of the Spirit of God are like the wind. And wind and spirit are the same word. So it's, uh, it's really interesting to read it um, and changing those words around. Those who are born of the Spirit are like the wind. Like with the wind, you're aware of it. Um, you hear it, it blows past you, but it's hard to say exactly where it's come from or where it's going. And people who are born of God's Spirit are like that. They are heavenly people in an earthly world. And people who are merely of this world encounter these people but they don't really know what they're on about. They don't know where they've come from and they don't know where they're going. And then Jesus proceeds to tell Nicodemus where he's come from and where he's going. He says he's come from heaven and he's going to the cross. He's going to be lifted up so that everyone believes in him who believes in him may have eternal life. So he actually tells Nicodemus where he's come from and where he's going. And so back in chapter 7, the reference to Nicodemus and the reminder that this is the guy who spoke to Jesus in chapter 3, it reminds us that people are struggling to grasp where Jesus has come from and where he is going because they are people who are only looking on the surface and judging by mere appearances. They don't perceive the deeper spiritual reality. So they might know where some of the spirit has come from and where they're going. They're ignorant of spiritual things. And they don't realise the spiritual reality that Jesus has actually come from heaven. He's going to the cross where he'll be lifted up and then he'll be returning to his Father. And that is the, uh, the spiritual reality about where he's come from and where he's going. And I think why there's so much misunderstanding about that all through this chapter. You know, today people search for authentic spirituality. Something that's a bit like something that's heavenly, something that sets us apart in, our, in the way we live from that, that earthly um, humdrum every day. Something different, a spiritual connection, a heavenly sense, uh, you know, a spiritual life, a spiritual reality. And they might see the church and God's people and only see the earthly origins and the earthly destination of an earthly institution. And so they look elsewhere to other man-made religions, to spiritualists or, or abandon the search altogether. But if we could invite people to look below the surface of who we are as God's people and not see us but see the Lord Jesus himself, the only one who has come from heaven and who has gone back into heaven and the one who sends the true spirit of God into the lives of those who believe in him, you know, we could show them what true spirituality is really like and how to have a genuinely spiritual life and spiritual connection. It's to come to Jesus and to meet the one who has come from heaven. He's been there and he's come to earth and he's, going, he's gone back and he sends his spirit as a gift and that spirit uh, is like water that flows up from within those who've put their trust in him.
And so for us, we must never forget who Jesus is, that he is the only source of genuine spirituality and that we are spiritual people because we have been born of the Spirit. We belong to Jesus, we believe in him and we've received his heavenly, holy Spirit. And we mustn't be discouraged and led astray by looking for something that is somehow more spiritual, uh, more enlightened or enlightening, uh, some extra knowledge or, or some certain understanding or some extra dose of the Holy Spirit. Because it's simply those who've come to Jesus and put their faith in him who receive the Spirit poured out into their lives by Jesus that wells up, flowing out of them. They are full as they can be with the Spirit, those who've simply come to Jesus and put their faith in him. And that if you've done that, you are as, as spiritual as you can be. And so we don't be discouraged and look for other things, but instead we, we stick with Jesus and preach his message and his invitation to those who are spiritually thirsty so that whoever believes in him might uh, come to, to him and receive the Holy Spirit that will flow in them like rivers of living water. And so uh, there we look at the, uh, the authenticity of Jesus really as genuinely being the one who has come from God, our heavenly uh, Lord. And, and so we know that, we, that it's not good to judge by appearances. Uh, we say that all the time about books, people, it's a truism. And so we mustn't judge Jesus by appearances either because we are those who have already looked below the surface and found Jesus to be the Son of God and the Saviour of of the world. We mustn't be discouraged if Jesus doesn't meet worldly superficial expectations or if others might judge him to be unpopular or unqualified or, or inauthentic in some way. But we don't be discouraged but we challenge others to look below the surface and to see who he really is and judge him correctly and to put his word into practice and discover for themselves that the Lord Jesus is actually a man of truth, as he said, and there is nothing false about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful reminder of who the Lord Jesus really is, the depth of his character, uh, the wonder of his being, uh, the um, awesome uh, nature of his presence, his teaching, his calling, uh, we ask that uh, you, would, uh, you would help us to stick with Jesus, to not be put off by those who might seek to judge him superficially, um, but rather to ask others to join us in looking below the surface and seeing who he really is. We pray that you would help us to keep on uh, engaging those around us with his grace and his truth that they too might come to the Lord Jesus and to be filled with his spirit and to receive light and life from him. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St Matt's West Bend Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au.
and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.